right. Welcome, everyone, to Giant Steps. I'm your host, Doug Van Dorn, my new podcast. And I am here with Rudy Landa, the producer extraordinaire, the master director, the Bolivian bohemian, the Miami marauder. The Bolivian oblivion. <laughs> the Bolivian oblivion? Like that. Oblivious. Bolivian oblivious. We got a good show today, man. We do. Got a good show with, with our good friend, uh, Derek Gilbert. Absolutely. Let's bring him in. And there he hey. is. It is an honor to be a part of the Giant Steps podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, man. You're one of our one of our very first guests, and uh, very thrilled to have that. You know, we're uh, you know we've been friends for a while, Derek. I'm trying to remember exactly how we met. I suppose it was probably uh, you had me on your show, maybe to talk about the Giant Book. I think so. I think so. It, but it goes it goes back to the pre-COVID era because I know you were part of the. Uh, the one uh, live conference that uh, Skywatch TV hosted as part of the, um, uh, the, the Mike Heiser Paranormal live session. So uh, it goes back to prior to 2019, I know. Yeah, maybe 2017, 16 even. Somewhere in there, yeah. I think I may have come on your show to talk about um, the Serpent Mount as well. I, we did. I, I had you and Judd on there after uh, Sharon and I found it in 2019, and then I went looking for it because I thought, well, surely I'm not the first one in history who's noticed this giant three-quarter mile long serpent-shaped <laughs> geological formation right in the middle of Bashan, a place that is literally named Place of the Serpent in the ancient uh, Ugaritic tongue. And that's when I realized that uh, even though I'd read Giant Sons of the Gods, I'd kind of somehow forgotten that, skipped over it, whatever. So, you know, credit where it's due. It's, uh, uh, it's an amazing cult site that as we learned during our expedition there back in March, uh, probably goes back more than 6,000 years uh, or at least 6,000 years. And uh, so, yeah, uh, we had to have you and uh, Judd to come on and talk about that. It's, uh, uh, there's a lot more in Israel, uh, both then and now than meets the eye. And so I guess it's my turn to host you this time on my show. And, and you know, I'm going to have, I suppose, some people listening to this program that uh, I'm hoping will kind of be in my circles. So I don't know how familiar they will be with you, Derek. So I went on the uh, IMDb and I found your mini biography. And so I thought I'd just give some highlights of this so that people can get to know your work a little bit better. You are one busy guy. That's all I have to say. I mean, you you are producing uh, your five and ten Skywatch TV. Is that a daily program? It is five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, basically, try to take a quick look at the news and, and how we process it from uh, a Christian perspective. And you and Sharon are doing um, Unraveling Revelation. That's a weekly program, isn't it? Weekly broadcast program uh, that is uh, uh, carried on the on the PTL network. Uh, which is just an amazing thing. They, they grandfathered us in because we started doing it more than 200 episodes ago when they were just streaming it on the internet. Oh. So, um, but, uh, so we got that. We do a weekly uh, Bible study called the Gilbert House Fellowship. We just did episode 392 of that. Um, and Are you uh, still doing this Bible's gosh, Greatest Mysteries thing? Well, that, no, that was a short-lived thing for Skywatch TV. We did 28 episodes of that and then um, that was uh, set to the side, and, and that in large part had to do with the, uh, the cost of broadcast television. Skywatch TV was uh, paying to put that out there, 
And um, as the economics of, of Christian television is changing, uh, it, it just didn't, uh, it, it just wasn't uh, viable. We will probably resurrect it in some form from our, our own studios here, which uh, I am sitting in now. This, this was a, a 30 by 40 foot uh, pole barn, a metal shop building on a concrete slab. And uh, thanks to some very generous uh, viewers and, and listeners, we, we were blessed with the resources to actually convert this, to insulate it, upgrade the power so we could run HVAC out here. So we're, we're um, turning this into usable space. Right now I'm sitting in what we use for the 5 and 10 studio for Skywatch TV. But uh, over to my left is uh, where I edit video and also the new View from the Bunker podcast studio. Unraveling Revelation will be over in that part of the building there. <laughs> our podcast studio for PID Radio and our Gilbert House Fellowship is going to go over there. Um, but uh, so, yeah, we... We you uh, have not because you asked not. <laughs> I, I, well, amen. Uh, so we, we just feel compelled, especially as... Um, Time grows short. I mean, we look at what's happening in the world prophetically and geopolitically, theopolitically, and we just feel compelled to try to put more content out there to help people understand what's going on. You are putting a ton out there. If that wasn't enough, I mean, you have, you're, you're a book writer extraordinaire, as is Sharon. And I didn't know this, but so you have several nonfiction books. And I'd like to have you talk about that in a minute, but I noticed that you also have at least one fiction book. Yeah, I've written a couple actually, and working on another one right now. Um, and actually, that's what we started doing back, uh, well, 20 years ago now. Sharon and I discovered something that was being promoted on the internet called National Novel Writing Month, which is actually starting again here in just a few days. Right, here that's November, days. right? Right, right. And so the challenge is to get people writing. Um, most of us don't write the way people did in the pre-internet era, and as our attention spans have gotten shorter and shorter, the skill of writing is, is becoming a lost art. So this is a challenge to write 50,000 words in 30 days. Now, 50,000 words would be a short novel, it, more of a novella than an actual novel. But uh, we did this back 20 years ago. And Sharon wrote her first novel called The Armageddon Strain. Uh, no, t I take that back. Winds of Evil was her first one. Um, she knocked out like 125,000 words in 30 days. Me, I got 25,000 wow. words. <laughs> but that eventually became my first novel called Iron Dragons, which is sort of a, a sci-fi fantasy mashup because I was never a huge fan of uh, fantasy fiction. Um, I, I, if I'd read more Tolkien when I was younger, I probably would have liked it better. <clears throat> but instead, you know, I, I associated fantasy with, you know, elves and fairies and stuff and, and just... It didn't, I was more of a hard science fiction guy. Isaac Asimov, Larry Niven, uh, Robert Heinlein. And uh, so I, I mashed it together because Sharon came up with it with a wonderful first line for the novel that I had to use, which is uh, dragon pee really stinks. <laughs> so went from there uh, and that became my first novel. Uh, then I wrote another, which was more of a conspiratorial um, supernatural thriller called The God Conspiracy, which um, we put out, self-published it back in 2006. It sold literally ones of copies. And um, when... COVID hit, it suddenly became a lot more relevant because it drew on some ideas Sharon had incorporated in her supernatural thriller called The Armageddon Strain, which dealt with 
a an experimental serum that was being forced on the American public, and uh, so suddenly, you know, 2020 hit, and it's like, oh, okay, suddenly this is relevant again. So I updated it and re-released it. Um, but the publisher that we had that was going to put those novels out back 20 years ago kind of got cold feet when they saw what we were doing. It's like, wait a minute, you're you're writing about things like you know Rex 84, you know, which is a, a FEMA. Uh, uh, camp, uh, 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 the use of FEMA camps to, to hold large groups of dissident American citizens and so forth. And that kind of conspiracy was a lot more popular during the Clinton years than it was during the George W. Bush years. So you'd go to Christian Booksellers Association and you're pitching a novel that deals with government conspiracies. It's like, don't you know our president is a Christian? It's like, yeah, okay, so we wound up, um, we wound up parting ways with the, uh, the publisher and went our own way. But uh, since then, yeah, uh, we, we're trying to use the written word as well as the, uh, the spoken word just to share the hope that we have in Jesus. Yes, there are things happening in the world that are distressing and disturbing, but guess what? It's all in the Bible, and if you read the end, spoilers, you know, God's team wins. Do you find it a completely different uh, sort of thing that you have to a mentality or a writing style to write between the difference between fiction and nonfiction? Yeah, and for me, fiction is actually harder. Sharon finds fiction much easier, and um, she is is really an amazing researcher, uh, and and she puts a lot of historical research into the the series that she's been writing. The um, uh, the Red Wings saga, which begins in Victorian London with the Jack the Ripper killings. And, uh, you know, the, the question is, was Jack the Ripper uh, never caught because he wasn't human? And then she goes from there and uses this to teach um, spiritual warfare, end times prophecy, and so forth. But she works a lot of historical characters in it. And this is how we found out about the, uh, the Mount Hermon inscription. Uh -huh. Because yeah. the gentleman who found the inscription on Mount Hermon inside the temple was uh, 19 years later, he was uh, superintendent of, the, uh, of uh, Scotland Yard and responsible for investigating the Ripper killings. In fact, Sir Charles Warren uh, resigned from the police force, Metropolitan Police, because of the killings. They weren't making any progress, and so he just stepped back. Um, of course, in Sharon's novel, that uh, inscription found by Warren on the temple on the summit of Mount Hermon, which oddly enough is the highest man-made place of worship on earth, um, was not, in, historically, was not unboxed and translated until 1903. So 33 years after he, 33, hmm, 33 years after he brought it home from uh, what was then called Palestine, Syria, Palestine. Uh, he, um, uh, th that was the first time that had been opened. But of course, in Sharon's novel, she was able to take that and use it as a plot point. Yeah, it came home, it was unboxed in 1870 and bad things got out. Um, anyway, that kind of thing is really interesting, but to create a believable world and characters that are realistic is really a challenge. Sharon is a wonderful storyteller. Me, it takes more work to get that done. I, I think I was mostly successful in The God Conspiracy. I'm working on a follow-up with some of the same characters called The God Game. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely a slower process for me than writing nonfiction. Yeah, I've tried it. I've never published anything that's fiction. Um, 
And I agree with you. It's I find it a lot harder. Maybe it's because I've written so much nonfiction now at this point that it's like learning a, a whole new discipline. I don't know. Well, yeah, it's it's exercising mental muscles, you know, and you get that muscle memory exercised. There are those who get into a zone and can just write and write and write. Some some authors are just extremely extremely prolific. Sharon would be more prolific. Uh, and she probably will be now that I <laughs> <laughs> Not in the same area. Uh, 30, 30 paces Correct. away in another building. So I can uh, do my thing without, uh, you know, interrupting her, her train of thought. And now she's got a writing room set up where we uh, formerly recorded Unraveling Revelation. And she'll be uh, taking advantage of that here soon. But yeah, it's a different mindset, different writing style. Once I get into it, there have been a couple of weekends where I've, I've knocked out as many as 30,000, 40,000 words in a weekend, which is about, you know, a quarter to a third of a novel. But, um, boy, you really have to get into a zone when you're there. And it's hard to do, especially as we've allowed ourselves in the modern world to be trained to, you know, for short attention span things like, you know, the stuff that comes in on your phone, social media. You know, I could really concentrate and focus and think about this character and this critical scene where he confronts the villain and they have this, you know, epic. Uh, or I could go check and see what's happening on X. You know, and uh, usually the, the short attention span, the low impact writing of 120 characters or less usually wins out, sadly. So I want to ask you a little bit about your nonfiction. But before I do that, I saw that and I knew that you were in a barbershop quartet, but your little bio ends by saying that <laughs> You've been known to sing the high part in barbershop and gospel quartet. Yeah, and I'm sitting yeah. here thinking, now, wait a minute. You have like the greatest voice in radio history. And <laughs> the guy who sings the highest part of the barbershop quartet would not usually fit that bill. So really? Uh, when I was young and in, in high school and getting involved in it, I, I realized pretty quickly that uh, there was a shortage of guys willing to sing the high tenor part in, in quartets. And I was blessed with the ability to sing a, a decent falsetto. So in order to get into quartets more easily, I volunteered to sing that part and uh, did that for a good long time. I sang the tenor part in several quartets that were fairly active over the years. Uh, my voice has changed somewhat, I've noticed, since we moved here the last eight years. And maybe it's that I'm not using it so much uh, but even before we, we left Illinois, I found that it was shifting a little bit. And now head voice, I can actually sing the lead part, the melody part, and hit the high notes on the tag more easily than I was trying to do before when I was trying to do it wrong. <laughs> but the high notes that I had in falsetto are not there anymore. So, huh. uh, yeah. But like I said, it was just a pragmatic decision on my part. If I want to sing in a quartet, I've got a better shot if I sing the high notes. Very interesting. I'd like to be a bass when I grow up someday, but I just don't think that's going to happen. You have to, you have to really stretch those muscles to get, get that voice mm -hmm. going deeper. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think, I think that that ship has sailed. <laughs> so plus the, uh, plus the tenors get featured more anyway, you know? Well, it, it depends. I mean, the basses are the ones that all the ladies are impressed with. You get a bass who gets a really nice solo and hits that, you know, low E below, you know, low C and, not uh, in heavy metal, pal. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Well, okay. All right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Point taken. But uh, yeah, you don't you, you don't find many arrangements of uh, say you know Guns N' Roses or Motley Crue right. in, in barbershop <laughs> right. quartet. Although I will say there is a court there is a chorus from Nashville 
that actually did a medley that included a piece of Welcome to the Jungle. Oh, really? <laughs> as part, as they did a set based on Noah and the Ark. Oh. And so you had the director who was dressed like Noah, you know, up there with a with like a paddle. Nice. And he was jamming on it like it was a, like it was an axe. And it was, you know, Welcome to the Jungle with all of the animals on the Ark singing it in four part acapella. It was amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, man. So, Derek, you've written uh, several nonfiction books. Uh, some of the names of them, Bad Moon Rising, uh, The Great Inception, Last Clash, Last Clash of the Titans. And your newest one is Second Coming of Saturn. Um, mm -hmm. I have a question for you about these. Is there a, like they, you know, they look from the covers like, they're part of a, a series. Did you write them that way or are they all kind of standalone books? Well, they're standalone, but there's a lot of overlap. And really each book has sort of developed as an outgrowth of research into the ones that came before it. So it's not like, it's not recycling a lot of old stuff. It's just like, hey, I've learned some new stuff and fit more pieces of the puzzle together. Um, you know, Bad Moon Rising focused more on Islam, Last Clash of the Titans, really was about the overlap between biblical prophecy and what we were taught in school as Greek mythology, which is their religion. Um, you know, surprise, the Hebrew prophets, the early apostles, they knew about the gods of the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Hurrians and Hittites and so on and so on. And uh, they understood what they were. These were fallen angels. Um, so Last Clash of the Titans dealt with that. Bad Moon Rising tried to do essentially that, but in the context of what Muslims believe and what role Muslims or Islam might play in the end times. Uh, Second Coming of Saturn was sort of a culmination of a lot of that uh, that had come before, uh, but focusing on a character who I thought had sort of been lost in history. We. Um, read about in the, in the book of First Enoch, the, the leader of, the, or one of the leaders of this rebellion of the sons of God, these watchers or watcher class Elohim or angels, if you prefer, who descended to Mount Hermon and swore a mutual pact with one another to proceed with a, a sin against God and against humanity by commingling with humanity and creating this hybrid race of giants, but also by teaching us, teaching us forbidden knowledge. Well, the leader of this rebellion is, is called Shemiyaza, which in Hebrew probably means something like the name, as in Hashem, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The name has seen, which is ironic because, yes, he did see what Shemiyaza and his colleagues did and sent them into the bottomless pit for it. Um, but we, we don't read about anything more of that entity afterward. I mean, he was so dangerous that the sin that he committed compelled God, Yahweh, to chain him up in the abyss. While Satan, I, I might point out, is still wandering the earth like a you know, lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay, that's bad. But this other dude, Shemiyaza and Azazel and their compatriots were so much worse that God had to chain them in the bottomless pit until the final judgment. What you know? What's strange so about that? that what's strange about that is that we actually do hear about Azazel, you know, like in Reve in Leviticus sixteen. Mm -hmm. um, so you hear about him, and in fact, right, you hear right. about him in the myths of of a uh, Bonius, Caesarea Philippi, 
those kinds of things. But right. you're right, Shemiyaza, it's like, what, what happened to this guy? Right, he was described as the chief of the watchers, who's the one who said, I'm afraid I'm gonna take responsibility for all of this that we're doing, so let's swear by mutual oath to uh, proceed with what we're going to do, to do this thing. And so they swore by mutual, and that's why the, uh, the inscription that I mentioned earlier found right. in the temple on the summit of Mount Hermon is so fascinating because it roughly translates from archaic Greek into English as, by order of the most high and holy God, those who swore an oath proceed from here. Wow. Like, that's clearly a reference to the watchers. Yeah, which is exactly so what, what we find in the Enoch uh, story in First Enoch 6. I mean, it right. says the exact same thing. It, how old is this inscription? Well, this inscription, because it was written in, in archaic Greek, probably is the classical period, maybe the early Christian era. Um, scholars differ on the opinion. I mean, Alexander didn't conquer the area until the late 4th century BC, so around 330, 335 BC, somewhere in there. It's really old. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there are some who think that it's 1st uh, or 2nd century AD. Yeah. But the, the point is that the event that they're pointing back to, Genesis chapter 6, was clearly known to uh, pagans, apparently. Right. Uh, and we're talking about an, an inscription that they felt compelled to uh, carve into a slab of limestone that weighed about three tons and then cart it up a 9,200-foot mountain that you can only get to uh, in September and afterwards, because that's how long it takes in the year for the snow to melt enough for people traveling on foot to get up there. And so when Sir Charles Warren brought it down the mountain, he actually had to shave the uh, stone down. It was like 12 inches thick, you know, four foot high, 18 inches wide. But he shaved it down from 12 inches thick to about four inches thick. So it only weighed 2,000 pounds. So he could get it back down the mountain and ship it off to the British Museum. So um, this event was really significant and you know Mike Heiser that's why he devoted the wrote the book uh, reversing Hermon uh, as he said that uh, when you um, ask a Christian today why is the world such a mess it's all because of the fall in the garden but if you asked a Jew of the second temple period why is the world in such a state they would say the fall in the garden the tower of Babel and Genesis 6 because of what happened at uh, you know Mount Hermon and what happened with the uh, the sons of God commingling and interfering in human history. Yeah. So again, I was just really curious, what happened to Shemiyaza? And I think when you put the pieces of the puzzle together, the entity who was known to the Romans as Saturn, and then by many other names throughout history, uh, Kronos to the Greeks, Baal Hamon to the Phoenicians, El to the Canaanites, Enlil or Elil to the Akkadians and Babylonians and Sumerians, Kumarbi to the Hurrians and Hittites, uh, Dagon to the Philistines and Amorites, but also Milcom to the uh, uh, to the, the Ammonites, which means he was Molech to the Hebrews. I think that's who we're dealing with here, because all of those entities, all, uh, under all of those names, I should say, that entity is in every one of those cultures connected to the netherworld, and in many of them, explicitly connected to human sacrifice. And in the case of Kronos and Molech, Milcom child sacrifice. There's a, an epithet among um, some of the Greek um, uh, settlements in Anatolia, which is now Turkey, where Kronos was, uh, had the epithet uh, technophagos, which means child eater, Kronos child eater. And of course the Tophet of the Bible, which was in the, uh, the valley of Hinnom, 
uh, in the New Testament referred to as Gehenna. Um, they found Tophets around the Mediterranean at Phoenician settlements like Carthage, uh, Matia on the island of Sicily, uh, Taros on the island of Sardinia, southern Spain and elsewhere where thousands upon thousands of children under the age of 24 months have been found who did not die of natural causes, burned and then buried in little clay jars. So this was a practice that was known well into the Christian era but extends well back into history and uh, again this entity Shemiyaza Saturn, whatever you want to call him, Molech, is responsible for it. And I think you can connect him to, uh, again, this entity who led that rebellion in Genesis 6. I think he is also to be identified as the destroyer, Abaddon or Apollyon of Revelation chapter 9. You know, um, because again, I'm hoping that we'll get some crossover with some folks that don't listen to our stuff regularly and so aren't familiar with the stuff we're doing on Iron and Myth and and what you're writing in your books. I just want to take a moment to step back for a minute and let people know that, you know, both you and I would believe that these are actually real entities. And this might bother some folks, you know. Uh, in fact, I know that it bothers some folks. Um, I don't know if it'll bother some folks that are actually going to listen to this show or not. But uh, I, I think what to help people understand this, uh, that there really are real entities that are behind you know, the worship of the gods of the nations. For a Christian, we already have that worldview in place. I just don't know that people really recognize it. You know, we, we talk about a being named Satan and we conservative Christians say that we believe that he's real. Um, but as soon as you start talking about the gods, people kind of freak out and, you know, well, that can't possibly be real. I, I found that one of the ways to help people get past this is to talk about them as fallen angels. I mean, that's sometimes right. the Greek Septuagint will translate the word gods as angels. So we believe in angels and we believe in Satan. We believe that he's a real entity. So it's not a stretch for people to wrap their mind around the fact that you can have entities that are real, that the Bible might use the term Elohim for or gods that are actually fallen angels that that and that something really happened in the past there weren't a ton of them you know if enoch is has any kind of historical tradition behind him there's like 200 of them so it's not like there's millions and millions that were behind what took place in the genesis 6 event and one of the things i find fascinating that that you've done is to take these different names and connect them through the different cultures like you've just done here with Saturn, Molech, Kronos to help people see that, you know, when you're looking at the pantheons, especially of the ancient Near East, Greece, Rome, maybe even up into Scandinavia, although I'm not sure, there's so much borrowing that's going on between these cultures that really we are talking about, for the most part, the same entities. It's not like, it's not like you have, you know, infinite amount of amounts of gods these are, people are just making up these deities but rather what they're doing is they're coming in they're taking over one one nation takes over another and then they incorporate their gods into who into who they are as a as a culture and can you speak to that a little bit yeah and uh, a lot of what is in the um 
the public domain uh, as far as information connecting these gods is, is well known to historians and, and archaeologists. It's just we've not been taught this and most pastors are not taught this in seminary. So uh, this is just, you know, Sharon and me trying to dig into what those guys know and then bring that information to the church and just say, look, uh, it, it really is not that mysterious when you start digging into it. The ancient uh, scholars uh, would, or scribes, I should say, scribes and uh, um, uh, linguists, the, those responsible for translating for their king with the kings of other nations, would put together um, lexicons that showed what the, essentially is like the, you know, 3,000, 4,000 year old equivalent of Google Translate. Uh, you know, on a clay tablet. Here's the <laughs> here's the list of gods in Akkadian. Here's the list of gods in Ugaritic. Here's the list of gods in Hurrian. Here's the list in Hittite. Uh, so we can show the one-to-one -one correlation for many of these entities. And uh, coming back to Saturn, it's it's clear when you put all of the evidence together that that entity, Sheminyaza through um, you know Apollyon occupied basically the same slot in the pantheon for all of these various cultures. But there are some that are really tricky to follow. And so we, we've had a number of requests over the years. Can you put together a chart right. or a graph or something? It's like, yeah, we could, but it would look like, you know, the, the crazy guy's conspiracy whiteboard with, uh, you know, circles and arrows and all of it. And in the middle is just a big circle with the word me in the middle, you know, it, it, you kind of, that way lies madness, in other words. For example, in ancient Sumer, the goddess of sex and war, uh, the equivalent of Ishtar for the Babylonians and, and uh, Akkadians uh, called Inanna. Inanna to the Sumerians, that's the oldest name that we have for this entity. She was known by na different names throughout the centuries in different cultures. The Hurrians called her Shauska. The uh, Canaanites called her Astarte. The uh, Amorites called her Atargetus. She was uh, Aphrodite to the Greeks. She was Venus to the Romans. Um, she, you could probably connect her to Isis of the Egyptians. So that seems interesting, you know, easy enough on its face, except that Inanna wasn't always female. There are Sumerian hymns that praise her for being able to change men into women and women into men. And some where she says, though I am a woman, when I sit in the tavern, I am also an exuberant young man. The Hurrian um, inscriptions, a very famous set of inscriptions showing the Hurrian deities on two walls at this, this sacred site in, in central Turkey with all the male deities on one side and all the female deities on the other side, Shauska, the Hurrian equivalent of Ishtar, Inanna, so on, was on both. And when you get to the Canaanite pantheon, things really get crazy because when uh, she was in the evening star, she was Astarte, the goddess of love, but in the morning she was Athtar, the war god. So she was male and female. Um, so how is that even possible? Sharon offered a really good illustration that I think helps us to understand how these entities can inter interact with us. They're coming from dimensions that we cannot perceive, which is, is why they seem to have almost, you know, magical abilities. They can jump into and out of our reality because they're operating in more dimensions than, than we do. Think of a, a, a hand with multiple finger puppets. You don't see the hand, you just see the puppets. Same hand, multiple puppets. That's kind of what's going on here with some of these entities. Um, and how they can, uh, you know, be multiple uh, deities in the same pantheon. For example, it is our contention that this entity, Inanna Ishtar, is uh, not just Aphrodite in the Greek pantheon. She's also um, 
uh, the, the sister of Apollo, whose name I'm forgetting, the great temple in uh, uh, Artemis, Artemis of Ephesus. So uh, I, I think it's, it's a little more complicated than just drawing one-to-one -one charts in, for, for some of these entities anyway. I mean, for some, it's fairly easy. The storm god of the, the, uh, the Canaanites, Baal or Baal, is Zeus to the Greeks, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse and the Germans. That's pretty easy. That's pretty simple. But when you start getting into some of these other entities, uh, it gets really convoluted. And like I said, trying to figure it all out and put it on a simple, easy-to-read chart, that way lies madness. <laughs> but you've been doing a, a great job of trying to you know, dig down and help people, you know, make at least some of the connections between these different cultures and the various gods of them. And I think it's amazing. And if people can't already tell, like you're a walking encyclopedia, Derek. <laughs> it's completely amazing. Yeah. Well, it, the, the Lord has wired my brain where if I find something really interesting, I, I go too deep into the subject and, uh, you know, I have to come up for air from every now and then. But uh, it, it is... Uh, as you say, um, I, I think our understanding in, as English speakers, our understanding of the word G-O-D as a proper name rather than as um, a word that, that means the denizens of the unseen realm, as in Hebrew, the word Elohim can, mean, can be singular or plural, and it can refer to capital E Elohim, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or it can mean the spirits of these other entities, or it can even refer to human spirits in the unseen realm. For example, when Samuel is called up um, to the shock and surprise of the medium of Endor, because she wasn't expecting him, I don't think, his spirit was referred to as an Elohim. But if we think of that word in the same way we think of God, then when somebody says, yeah, uh, God proclaimed judgment on all the gods of Egypt, we have to sort of compartmentalize and say, well, okay, God was just punishing the, the idols, these blocks of wood and stone. Those gods don't really exist. Well, as Mike Heiser said, our, our friend, the late Mike Heiser, why is that any different than God saying, I'm going to you know, punish SpongeBob SquarePants, yeah. these, these imaginary characters? Why would he do that? How does that demonstrate the power and superiority and uniqueness of Yahweh? It, it doesn't. God calls these entities gods, uh, and so maybe we should uh, rethink what we've been taught, because um, if he is actually going out of his way, for example, in Psalm 82, to proclaim a sentence of death on these rebellious gods, maybe this is something that we as Christians should pay attention to, because it seems to have some relevance, some bearing on the state of the world today, which is, I would argue, not in its uh, intended ideal uh, perfect condition, thanks to the free will choices of both the human and supernatural entities that are active within it. It's interesting to me that um, I think that people take this word God and they, and they think of that word as that which describes one entity. And so therefore, then they hear the, they hear the, little word God. And like you said, they ascribe this to idols, um, which of course have no existence because they're just wood and stone, but that's not a correct way to think about this. So um, the word God is really, like you said, it's describing an entity on the other side. I would argue that it also includes an entity that has some kind of a ruling capacity. 
so an authority, a dominion, a principality, a prince, a throne, a star, all those kinds of things. They, they have those things in common. And what sets Yahweh as God apart from the other gods is his incommunicable attributes. He's omnipresent. Right. He's omniscient. Um, and his names really help get at that, you know, the, the all-seeing one, Elroy, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's something that's still new to a lot of people to hear this kind of talk. But there are definitely ways that we can think about it as Christians that are completely orthodox. And we already have the tools there, like I said earlier, if you if you can exchange the word God for angel or whatever, it, it makes it a little bit easier because you already believe that angels exist. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about, is there anything specific we want to talk about? And you've, and you've kind of hinted at it a few times here. And, and I will set this up by, um, first of all, noticing the title of your most recent book, uh, in terms of the second coming of Saturn. And it reminded me of Jonathan Kahn's new book, The Return of the Gods. It's a very similar kind of an idea, isn't it? And um, I've seen a couple of videos that he has done recently kind of promoting that book. And one of them is dealing with, in fact, probably both of them are dealing with Ishtar, I think. Um, one of them is the new Barbie movie. If people have not seen what he did with the Barbie movie, it's unbelievable because he noticed that in this crazy movie, they start the movie off uh, with the exact same opening sequence that you find in 2001, A Space Odyssey, except for instead of the monolith, it's the Barbie. And instead of the ape men, it's the little kids with the Barbie. Instead of them hammering... Uh, hammering a skull that they find there the little girl is destroying the head of her bar of her little doll it's completely crazy and then you know he brings this in and he starts talking about what was barbie really and at the beginning well she was some sort of a basically a prostitution doll that they brought over from europe and they sanitized her and and then he moves her in into the realm of ishtar and then he has another one, which he says, well, what, what would it look like if all of a sudden this entity, this female entity came back? And he starts talking about how uh, she has this both masculine and feminine attributes to her. And, and uh, he also talks about how one of her main symbols is the rainbow. And so, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to me to think about how different people have tried to deal with this um question there's a question that uh, Jed and I went on um, blurry creatures and they might be releasing this one fairly soon talking about this idea of gods and goddesses uh, are there actually female angels have you ever heard people talk about this there's only male yeah. angels in the bible so so there's no female angels and and uh you know that's kind of one way that people think about this but what if in other people you know like when Brian Gadow is dealing with this in his books he makes he he kind of has all these angels be male, but then he says that they kind of fake uh, some sort of a, a a transsexual sort of a thing, fake and pretend that they're actually female for some perverted reasons, and that's an interesting way of dealing with it. And you talked about how you and Sharon have dealt with it. Um, you know, it, he brings up this idea: if you were if she was to come back today, what would it look like? And then 
you know, he goes straight to the the crazy, weird, bizarro transsexual stuff that is just taken over not just our country, but and fact, frankly, not just the Western world, but the entire world. Uh, it's it's deeply embedded in China. This stuff is going on too. So it's like the return of the gods. That's so. It's such a strange, weird thought, um, and one that I've entertained quite a bit. And when we were talking about, you know, what what we should talk about, you brought up um, maybe this idea of Hamas and the god of Islam. And we were kind of bantering around a couple of different ideas that I, I've I've thought for a while that the god of Islam, Allah, is actually the moon god. And then you had a, a slightly different idea. So, you know, maybe we could go this direction mm -hmm. and take that into this whole area, the valley of the shadow of death and some of the things that you've been thinking about it. Yeah, this is um, the, the world is in the state that it's in because the unseen realm was um, created with free will, just as just as we are. And so many of them have chosen to exercise their free will to um, rebel, just as we humans have. You know, there is none righteous, no, not one. Um, I think when when Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants, those who were the, uh, uh, had rented a vineyard from a, a landlord who was, you know, in a faraway land. I, I think this kind of illustrates the, the situation that we're in in the world. These, these uh, tenants represent the spirits, the angels, if you will, who were delegated responsibility for kind of overseeing God's creation. Um, and, and we see that in the Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, uh, recounting of history that Moses did to the Israelites. When God divided the nations, he numbered them according to the number of the sons of God. It's the understanding to this day of the rabbis that the 70 nations, which is a number that just represents all of them, so all of the nations except for Israel under, are under the control of these angels. And I, I would suggest that Psalm 82 which reads like a courtroom scene in heaven, is God declaring judgment on these angels who've been delegated this responsibility because they're ruling unjustly. Um, this speaks to the, uh, the nature of the struggle, and I think the struggle is for control of the mount of assembly. We see this hinted at in Isaiah chapter 14, and one of the things I did in uh, Second Coming of Saturn and I have to give credit to the fellow who got me thinking this way 15 years ago. David W. Lowe, in his book, Deconstructing Lucifer, pointed out that the early church, Jews of the Second Temple period, which again would include disciples, the disciples and the apostles, but the early church did not connect Satan to this character called Lucifer, who is uh, the, the rebel who's kicked out of heaven in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, o day star, son of dawn, Helel ben Shakar. Um, that was translated into Latin as light bringer, lux feros, uh, by Origen in the third century when Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate. He kept that in there and just made it a proper name, Lucifer. That's where we get Lucifer. It just means light bringer, uh, Helel ben Shakar. But that character was not connected to Satan until uh, several centuries after the resurrection of Jesus. So if that wasn't, if, if the early church, the earliest church, if the disciples, the apostles, if the, the uh, Jewish religious scholars 
didn't identify that character in Isaiah as Satan, then who is he? Who was he? And what did he want? Well, we see the five I wills. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. Well, what is that? The Mount of Assembly, that term Har Moed, shows up in the New Testament, except it's transliterated into Greek as Har Megiddon, from which we get the mistaken idea that Armageddon will be fought at Megiddo. Uh, and without getting into the linguistics here, it's, it deals with the Hebrew character Ayin, which uh, is a glottal stop. You, there is no corresponding Greek or English letter. The bottom line is that in the ancient world, it was understood that um, the the mountains were, were the, the abode of gods, that uh, the gods of, uh, the, of all the pantheons would meet on a mountain somewhere. And clearly this, this rebel, whoever he is, and I argue in the second coming of Saturn that this is Shemiyaza, not Satan, that his goal was to establish his own mount of assembly as the preeminent place on earth, ruling the earth from his own mount of assembly and the far reaches of the north um, Yarakate Tsephon actually points to Mount Tsephon, which was known to be the mountain that was sacred to Baal. Baal's palace was located on Mount Tsephon. Uh, I don't think Baal is to be equated with Satan. Or Baal is Satan, but I, again, I'm, I don't think Satan is this character in Isaiah chapter 14. But this points to the, the prize, the Har Moed. The question then is, where is God's, Yahweh's Har Moed? That's Zion, that's Jerusalem, that's the Temple Mount, which is why that little 35-acre piece of ground is fought over and has been for centuries, and especially since 1967 when Moshe Dayan made the decision to, uh, once he captured it, to give it back to Muslim control. The, Waqf, the uh, Jordanian government technically controls what happens on the Temple Mount. That didn't make anybody happy. Um, this will continue until, until our Lord and Savior returns. But I think it's all about who controls the land that God declared as His. In fact, He hinted at it as far back as the time of Abraham. The binding of Isaac took place on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. Um, it was uh, declared openly in the time of Moses and Joshua. And uh, the, the followers of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have been fighting for uh, control of that land ever since. They never really took full control over it, and um, for the last 2,000 years, ever since the Emperor Hadrian basically depopulated Judea after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, uh, and then again since 1948 when Israel was reestablished as an independent state, things have just gotten worse and worse. So what's going on now with Hamas, I think, is the spirit that they worship. And I, I would argue that it is, uh, rather than the moon god seen, um, I would argue that it is this entity, Shemiyaza, or Molech, or the destroyer, Abaddon, Apollyon. This god of the underworld, this god of death and destruction. I mean, he is the destroyer after all. Uh, I think that is who is fighting for control of the land. And we look at this uh, going back to the time of, um, well, the conquest. I mean, we, we know that there were worshipers of El and his Ammonite uh, counterpart, Milcom, which is just a title that means king, in the area in the time of Moses and, and Joshua. Uh, when, um, uh, for example, when uh, Jacob 
was traveling north. He stopped at Bethel, which literally means Temple of El. Uh, and that's where he saw the angels loyal to Yahweh going up and down on a, a ziggurat, not a ladder. The word in Hebrew actually means ziggurat, connecting earth to heaven there at Bethel. After the uh, death of Solomon, when Jeroboam split the kingdoms, he established golden calves, his own cult centers at Dan, which is at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is the abode of El. That's where El's uh, tabernacle was located, according to the Canaanites. Um, scholar Edward Lipinski refers to Mount Hermon as the Canaanite Olympus, where the gods would meet and uh, decree the fates of the land and so forth. But uh, Jeroboam also put the, put the other golden calf at Beth El. Why a golden calf? Because the epithet of El, this, the, the Canaanite uh, identity of this, this character, Molech, Dagon, uh, Enlil, Saturn, Kronos, Baal Haman, et cetera, et cetera, uh, was Bull El. That was, that was how he was represented. Um, I think that this entity has been, through his minions, fighting Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for control of the land through their human agents on this earth. And uh, Sharon and I just learned just a couple of weeks ago as we were doing some study after the events of October 7th on what or who was worshipped in Gaza, which of course was part of the Philistine Decapolis back in the uh, time of um, uh, the judges, back in the time of uh, David and, and Solomon. Uh, the city god of Gaza was uh, known from the, the Persian period, that's about 5th century BC, through the early Christian era, to, to, up to about 500 AD. The city god of Gaza, the patron deity of that city, was a god called Marnus, and a scholar named Edward Lipinski, the same one who identified Mount Hermon as the abode of El, identified this character Marnus as Dagon. In other words, El. Molech, Saturn, Shemiyaza, the Destroyer, etc. It would seem to make sense that that spirit has got a spiritual stronghold. Uh, and of course we know from the story of Samson that Dagon, this entity, was the patron deity of the Philistines as far back as the time of uh, the judges. So uh, for at least, at least two millennia, it would seem, that entity had a stronghold in and around Gaza, as well as at the north end of Israel at Mount Hermon, and uh, again at Bethel, which is not all that far from some of the uh, Palestinian strongholds in the uh, in what the world calls the West Bank, Samaria. Man, there's there's so many things to to think about here. It's so yeah. interesting, so fascinating. It, you know, I guess one thing that pops into my mind is God showing Himself to Jacob at Bethel, um, kind of taking that territory for Himself. And I think probably the same thing is going on at the Transfiguration, where. Uh, yes. Jesus and the Father are going to the top of Mount Hermon to this evil mountain and basically claiming it as their own territory. This is my turf. And from here, at this moment, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail uh, against it. Um, so that's one thought that comes into my head. Another one is kind of a question, I guess, I have for you. And, you know, earlier we were talking about Shemiyaza being locked up in Tataris, at least according to Enoch. And I think that Peter is saying the same thing in Second Peter. He's clearly referencing that when he uses that same uh, Greek word for the underworld. Uh, so I think that it has a biblical precedent. We were talking about how, you know, it's like, what happened to this guy? And it just struck me that, well, if, he's, if he is actually L, if he's the same entity, then, you know, maybe it is actually more like uh, Azazel than I thought that, that um, even if he's locked up, 
he's still able to have some sort of worship even after the fact. You know, I look at it as kind of a house arrest. But I'm curious, how do you make sense of an entity being locked up in Tataris? Uh, and I don't know if you assume that he is still locked up or maybe he's been released or whatever. I don't know. It'd be interesting to find out. But uh, assuming he was locked up, how do you make sense of the fact that uh, he would then have sort of worship centers or whatever after the fact? Well, in the same way that a mafia boss can still control action on the streets while he's locked up in prison. Um, we don't know specifically how that works, but in the second coming of Saturn, I wrote a chapter on uh, <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 32, which seems to offer some, some clues that perhaps there's some interaction between the demonic spirits of the Rephaim, the Nephilim, the giants destroyed in the flood, and uh, this entity who was also known, by the way, as Ashur, the chief god of the Assyrians. Scholars just refer to Ashur as the Assyrian Enlil. So um, in Ezekiel 32, which is a polemic against the, uh, uh, the king of Egypt, we read that uh, they shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away in all her multitudes. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them. Now that word is uh, Nophilim Giborim. And there are some scholars who believe that this, that, that is mispointed. Mm -hmm. It should read um, the, the, uh, uh, the, the mighty Nephilim. Yeah. Are, uh, but it's clear that when you read verse 21 in the Septuagint, that that's how Jewish religious scholars understood that verse. Because in the Septuagint, and I'm reading the Lexham English Septuagint, which is a more modern English translation of the Greek, and the giants will say to you, Come in the depth of clamor, then whom are you mightier? So it, in other words, they understood that these mighty chiefs or the chiefs of the Gibberim that are referred to in Ezekiel 32, 21 are the giants. In other words, the Nephilim of the pre-flood era. So uh, then you go down to verse 22 and you read Assyria is there. That's how it's translated. But the word in Hebrew is Ashur. And that gets tricky because Ashur is can mean the nation Assyria. It can also mean the capital city of the Assyrians, but it's also the name of the Assyrian Enlil, their chief deity, Ashur. And I suggest, and this is speculation, I don't know of any other scholars who've, uh, well, I say any scholars, I, I won't include myself among the scholars, but any scholars who agree with me on this, but I speculate that in Ezekiel 31, or 32, verse 22, it should be Ashur is there, and all her company or all his company, depending on who translates it. Um, its graves all around it, all have fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the uttermost parts of the pit. Now that word uttermost parts is the same one we see in Isaiah 14, yarkate. It means as far away as you can possibly get. The uttermost parts of the pit, yarkate bore. I think that might be and again, I'm alone here on this, this limb, but I think that might refer to Tartarus. The uttermost parts of the pit and her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land, uh, the lands of the living. So I, I think here, and again, this is speculation. If, if Asher, I'm, if I'm right, and Asher is this same entity, and that's who's in view here in Ezekiel 32, you've got the mighty chiefs in the midst of Shale almost like they've got pride of place. And then at the uttermost parts of the pit, you've got Asher or Enlil or El or 
Milcom, Molech, in, in the abyss, just as we read in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, and Jude, verses 6 and 7, the angels who sinned being sent to, the, to Tartarus in, Peter, uh, in Peter's words. Um, I, I think we may see a reference to it here in Ezekiel chapter 32. It suggests to me, again speculating, that perhaps the demonic spirits of the giants, the Nephilim, the Rephaim, can travel back and forth and perhaps carry messages. Um, that would seem to be the most plausible explanation uh, that I can come up Interesting. with. Interesting. Again, similar to, similar to a, a mafia yeah. boss or a gang leader getting messages out of prison. Huh. You had talked about um, connecting what's going on um, in the Middle East right now and, and not, not bringing it up as like this is the end of the world or anything, but just connecting it geographically to this idea of the valley of the shadow of death. And um, yeah. you guys, especially Sharon, and has done some amazing work on Psalm 23 and connecting this idea of what David calls the valley of the shadow of death to a particular part of Israel that you and I got to go to. Um, I, think what I, I think what I'd like to do, Rudy, is share my screen here and show just uh, three little things. And then after we show that, um, I'm going to uh, have Derek comment on these things. So the first thing that I want to show is uh, when we went to um, when we went to I don't know if I can get this to work. Yeah, this should be it. This is the Gilgal Rephaim. So are we sharing the screen? So I'm going to push play here. And so for people who don't know, Gilgal Rephaim is uh, translated into English as the wheel of the giants. And this is right near where the serpent mound is, where we were, we were talking about earlier. But this is just an overhead view that I think that um, Aaron Lipkin gave to us when we were over there. This was last taken last March. And you can see that it's a giant wheel of 40, 42,000 uh, rocks and, and a, a megalithic structure that's just completely ancient. Uh, predates Abraham, probably goes back 6,000 years. It's got a central tumulus in the middle where there's a, uh, what seems to be a, a grave, which is where the thing really got its modern name from, because this was the land of King Og. And the reason I'm showing this, uh, we can go ahead and stop there, is I want to go to the next one here. And I don't know if this is going to show up or if I have to switch the screen. I think I might have to switch the screen on this. So no worries. Um, this should be it. Okay. So this is a place. Uh, what's it called? I can never say it right, Derek. And I just want people yeah, to see. It, it means ruins of Bethsaida. Yeah. I want people to see the, uh, this was a probably, this is probably the best footage of this in the entire world that we yeah. got taken when we were there. This is not, it's only two miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's probably as the crow flies, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 miles from where we were just at, at the Wheel of Giants. But you can see how similar this thing looks. And as the drone um, pans around here, it's going to go down into the valley where the Jordan River is. And so this is kind of right on the edge in fact, some of the structure has fallen down. It's no longer what it was. But that's the Jordan River that people can see there. 
Uh, and this is, you know, we have we have these theories. You, it's your theory that Jesus was probably um, baptizing somewhere very, very close to here. And I have a theory that this could very well be the very place where Jesus was feeding the 5,000. Now, this is only, like I said, about two miles north of um, two miles north of the Sea of Galilee. We'll go ahead and stop that there. And as you come up through the ravine, I think the ravine goes, I don't know, five or six miles. And then you open up into what's called the Hula Valley. And we went to a place uh, in the Hula Valley that I, is the last thing that I want to show folks. So let me hop over the screen here. And hopefully I can pull that up. I think it's this one. There we go. Okay, so I'll share this. And this is the Shamir Dolman. So this is the this is the biggest. The, like this, you can tell us more about this. But this entire place is littered with dolmens, which are burial graves, and they look like tables um, in their classic form, where you have two vertical slabs with a horizontal slab on top of it. But this is the biggest horizontal slab that we know of in Israel. It's like fifty thousand mm -hmm. tons or something. And 50 tons, 50, so, yeah, 50, 50 tons, 50,000 tons, 50, is, 000 tons yeah, would be a lot. That's like, that's like two, <laughs> yeah, two, two fully loaded 18 wheel flatbed trailers. So yeah, that's still very, that's still a lot 50 tons. And here we are walking down into the thing and it's scoot ahead a little bit. And you can see that it's positioned on these other rocks. And um, for reasons that I'd like for you to talk a little bit about, uh, this is what you guys think is actually the place, not not just this specific dolmen or even dolmen field, but the whole Hula Valley is probably what David was referring to when he talked about the Valley of the Shadow of Death. So I'll kind of hand it over to you and you can talk as much as you want to about this. Yeah, this, this uh, was part of a, a dolmen field of about 400 dolmens altogether. It's kind of at the northeastern corner of the uh, the Hula Valley, um, th that's the valley that the Jordan River runs through between Mount Hermon in the north and the Sea of Galilee on the south. Um, there are so far have been about 1,100 dolmens that have been found on the hills around this valley. Um, none of them were found down on the floor of the valley, and that's because until the 1950s, that valley was a swamp. It was a marsh. Um, it's still a sort of a wildlife refuge for migrating birds that fly between Africa and Europe every year. The uh, Israelis drained it in the 1950s to get rid of malaria and has turned into some very fertile farmland, but the Jordan River still runs through this very um, peaceful, uh, almost uh, looks like the American Midwest in some areas because you know, you've got very neat, uh, orderly farm uh, agricultural land there along that, uh, that river. But According to the archaeologists who've been uh, exploring the region and the dolmens in the area, that, uh, um, that Shamir dolmen field, which is anchored by that, the, 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 the big daddy dolmen there, the one with the 50-ton capstone, was the center, they think, of the dolmen building culture in and around ancient Israel. Now, what, what are dolmens? What is their purpose? Um, it, it depends. They appear to be, it may have been used differently in, in different areas along the Jordan River. Um, the Jordan Valley is home to a higher concentration of dolmens than, than any place on earth. There are dolmens found all over the world. You find them in Korea, you find them in 
the UK. The word, in fact, is from a Celtic language, Britonic, that means table, because as Doug mentioned, they, they have uh, the, the simplest form is two vertical slabs with a, a tabletop stone across to the top. The ones on the Golan Heights near Gilgal Rephaim uh, have that form, but then there's a tumulus of, of stone around it. So they would build the dolmen and then they would cover it with a bunch of rocks. Uh, and that is the case even with uh, this one there, the 50-ton capstone, they, they pulled a lot of those rocks away. But the, the, the question is, what are they used for? And it is in all probability related to the cult of the dead that is known now to have surrounded ancient Israel. The, um, in, in fact, we, we spent a day at uh, Gilgal Rephaim and on that serpent mound a quarter of a mile north of Gilgal Rephaim with Dr. Mike Freakman, an archeologist who's done the most recent excavations at Gilgal Rephaim and on the serpent mound. He also wrote a paper about that uh, other similar site, uh, Kerbet Bateha, and he's identified two others similar to Gilgal Rephaim on the Golan Heights, one that we're hoping to visit uh, when we get back to Israel, uh, it's in a training zone for the IDF. We'd have to get special permission for the military to go out there so they're not, you know, shooting while we try to find it. Uh, but the fourth one is located in the middle of a minefield, sadly, so that one is uh, completely off limits. But why were these things there? Why are there so many dolmens? There, there are uh, something like 25,000 dolmens that have been found between Mount Hermon and the Dead Sea, clustered mainly in the Jordan Valley and more than 5,500 on the Golan Heights alone, which is the ancient kingdom of Bashan, which again in the Ugaritic or Canaanite dialect means place of the serpent. And why are there 1,100 of them on either side of the valley through which the Jordan River runs? Um, this is uh, again, because that area was known to the pagans around ancient Israel to be supernaturally charged. There are texts from the Amorite kingdom of Ugarit, which is in uh, western Syria on the Mediterranean Sea near the modern border of Turkey that uh, in, was destroyed in, around the time of the judges, around 1200 BC. But their religious texts were preserved. Thankfully, when the city was burned, the uh, fire baked the clay tablets. And so uh, scholars have had a field day translating these for the last hundred years. The uh, Canaanites believed that there was something about the Sea of Galilee region connected to the Rephaim. In other words, these underworld spirits connected to, for, for the Canaanites, these were the mighty kings of old. In Genesis, they're referred to as the uh, men of renown, um, the giants who lived in the pre-flood era. There is a, uh, there's one legend in particular where a king's son is killed and uh, the, the king says three times in the course of this epic poem, I will search for my son and when I find him, I will weep for him, then I will bury him uh, in a tomb at Kinneret, which is in Galilee. Of Galilee. Yeah. Um, there's also a scholar by the name, an Israeli scholar by the name of Baruch Margalit, who analyzed that uh, epic and suggests that the, uh, the abode of El, the dwelling place of the chief Canaanite god El, who again is Milcom Molech, Dagon, uh, Saturn, Kronos, the destroyer, Shemiyaza, uh, that the, um, the location of his, his abode, which is described as the source of the two deeps or the source of the double deep, may be in the vicinity of, if not under, the Sea of Galilee itself. Which means that that whole region from the Sea of Galilee 
to Mount Hermon is supernaturally charged. You, you know this from the pagan texts, but you also see the clues in Scripture. Um, I, I think we, we uh, see this in the location of, of Jesus' baptism in John chapter 1, beginning at verse 28, where we read that uh, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Um, this was uh, John the Baptist being confronted by scribes and Levites sent from Jerusalem by the Pharisees to find out why he was baptizing, who gave him the authority. Um, for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to find Bethany across the Jordan. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But in 1877, a scholar by the name of Claude Condor said, wrote that uh, Bethany, or in the Greek, Bethania, is probably a transliteration into Greek from the Latin name for that region north of the Sea of Galilee, Batania, or Bashan, Bashan, Bashan across the Jordan. Uh, so Jesus was baptized there. Uh, he called his first disciples from there. He moved his ministry there to Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in Matthew chapter 4, he identified that event, the movement of Jesus' ministry from Nazareth to Capernaum as being significant. In fact, he, he called it the fulfillment of uh, prophecy of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 9, the prophecy that uh, includes the messianic declaration, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, Matthew said that um, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is, again is Jesus moving to Capernaum. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The way of the sea was the Roman road, the Via Maris. Beyond the Jordan means east of the Jordan River, the Roman road that connected Egypt to Damascus and then Mesopotamia beyond, ran up through this valley and then headed northeast at the site of the ancient city of Hatzor. That's about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon. Uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And here's the money quote, Matthew 4, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has mm. dawned. Jesus moving to the south end of this valley to base his ministry at Capernaum was a fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah 9, according to Matthew. So that's why we think this, this valley, known as supernaturally charged for more than a thousand years by the time Jesus walked the earth, was the fulfillment of this prophecy. The valley, of, we know that David had a prophecy, uh, Psalm 23, but also Psalm 22, when you go to the uh, Psalm just prior to that, which is the Messianic prophecy. Uh, that's the Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which Jesus quoted from the cross. And then in uh, verses 12 and 13, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. As scholar Robert D. Miller II wrote, it's not bulls of Bashan, it's bales of Bashan. They're not bovine, they're divine. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And then of course you get into Psalm 23, which deals with walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Again, remember, this is a valley surrounded by more than a thousand of these tables, these dolmens. And here David is saying, though I walk through this valley, you prepare a table before me. 
these tables, these dolmens were part of the cult of the dead, the part of the, the cult of remembering the ancestors so they would not cease to exist in the afterlife. The Amor they believed that if you didn't summon your ancestors to a monthly ritual meal and feed them after death, they would cease to exist. It's calling the name keeping one's name in remembrance. Uh, David's son Absalom erected a pillar for himself in the Valley of the Kings, for he had no son to keep his name in remembrance. That's what all of this was about. God said, no, no, you don't, th this is not how we do this anymore. And then Jesus reversed it. The Last Supper was not a meal to keep the dead sustained in the afterlife. Jesus said, I'm giving myself to you so that you will be sustained forevermore. Um, it's, it's astonishing how this whole practice of feeding the dead was turned on its head through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we see this reflected not just in where Jesus chose to set up his ministry, the valley of the shadow of death, but the prophecy included in Isaiah, and I, I would suggest Psalm 23 to an, to an extent is prophetic. Absolutely. So, yeah. I don't. I don't think anybody can. It's too many coincidences. You know, that's that's really mind blowing. It really is. Yeah, I'm looking at Psalm 23 in the Targum right now, and it's interesting that when Jesus is uh, feeding the five thousand um, at this Kirbat Batea uh, mm -hmm. site, that Mike Freakman found two um, yes rock carvings, and only two, and one was of a serpent and then the other appears for all all i can see as a fish right very interesting so we've got this serpentine imagery of of you know lucifer satan uh whatever fallen angelic being and then you've got you know the fish and jesus of course is feeding the people with the fish and then he's feeding them with the bread but in, if you go to the john telling of this story in john 6 he starts talking about how he's the manna from heaven and in the Targum, it says, he restores my soul with manna. So you have, uh, you know, if he's, if, if he's feeding them, if he decided to go to that place to do it, and if the valley of the shadow of death is what you're talking about, then it seems very much as if Psalm 23, it has a lot more prophecy to it than just what people, you know, usually take as, well, this is a good kind of funeral uh, psalm or yeah, whatever yeah. to comfort people. This, this is a good metaphor for how God sustains you as you go through the dark night of the soul, but really it, it's more literal than that. Um, the valley of the shadow of death, the region of the shadow of death, people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Again, these are not just figures of speech. The, um, the prophets, the, uh, those who waited for Jesus, for the Messiah in the first century, would have understood this, especially because they were familiar with the writings of the uh, uh, the Essenes, who were the ones who composed the Book of First Enoch, um, I, I think, in a nutshell, what we've got is this cult of the dead that began with the rebellion described very briefly in Genesis chapter six, where these sons of God came to Earth, commingled their seed with the seed of humanity, created these monstrous hybrid creatures called Nephilim giants. Uh, their spirits, according to First Enoch, became the demons that afflict the world to this day. But after the flood, 
humanity very quickly fell into the worship of these entities. They were convinced that, oh, the spirits of the ancestors must be sustained, and this is how you do it. You have a monthly ritual meal where you have to summon them by name. And it wasn't the spirits of the ancestors. It was these demonic spirits bringing humanity into a system, a religious system of control that continues to this day. We know today of cultures that still venerate their ancestors all over the world, from Asia to Africa to here in the, the Americas. The people are, there are still people who believe that they need to leave little gifts, offerings to their ancestors to appease them, to keep them happy. This is demonic. This is what Jesus came to overturn, part of his mission, as Mike Heiser wrote in Reversing Hermon. And I think this is what we're looking at in the physical conflict that is taking place today, because for whatever reason, it is all about the land that God declared as his own. And these entities, these spirits created by the rebellion of this entity led by Shemiyaza or El or Milcom, Molech, or whatever you want to call him, Dagon, um, he is still fighting for control of that land. And as we see in the book of Revelation, Har Moed, Har Magedon, Armageddon, the final battle, when you compare that with the, the uh, apocalyptic prophecies in the Old Testament, suggests that this final battle of the age, a supernatural conflict, will be fought for Jerusalem, fought for Israel. Why? I don't know. Why is that place on earth any, any better than, uh, I mean, we love the Ozarks here. Why not fight over this? I mean, you know, set up the eternal kingdom here in the Ozarks. I think that'd be pretty awesome. I don't know. Not my game. I'm not the designer. God set the rules and put it into motion. And these, enemy, these, these entities, these wicked tenants who convinced themselves in that parable that if they killed the son of the owner, they would take his inheritance, this planet. That's not how it worked. And even the scribes and Pharisees understood what happens when the, uh, the landowner comes back, the landlord comes back. Well, he will destroy them. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. And we're just seeing the birth pangs leading up to that final conflict happening all around us today. Derek, you and I could go on forever and ever talking about this stuff. <laughs> you, you know that. Um, I think to close this out, um, I, wanna, I want us to talk for a minute about what happened uh, last week over at, at your work, your place of residence. So um, you work for, or at least you have worked for Skywatch TV. I don't know. Do you, are you still formally employed by them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of on a half time basis, but what I'm sitting in right now is the studio that we use to record the daily five and 10 yeah, that's right. analysis for that's Skywatch right. TV. Um, I, and, uh, because of the, the situation with Tom Horn, who was called home to be with the Lord last Friday, um, Jonathan Kahn was uh, coming in town last week and, uh, Rather than reschedule and rebook everything with Jonathan Kahn, whose schedule is uh, very, very busy, as you can imagine, um, I stepped in and, and hosted the programs in Joe Horn's place. Hmm. Uh, so Joe could be with the family at his father's side. And that um, was, was honored and happy to do that. But yes, Tom Horn um, passed after a, uh, about an 11-day battle. He suffered a, a major heart attack on October 11th. And... Um, for a couple of days, it kind of uh, came in and out of uh, lucidity and clarity. Uh, as he arrived at the hospital, I'm told his uh, heart had a 100% blockage, the artery yeah. leading into his heart, which is uh, nearly always fatal. They got to him just in time, got him yeah. to the hospital just in time, uh, and, and put in a stent. But 
Um, his system had been so taxed by that that uh, just really never bounced all the way back. And uh, again, the Lord called him home this past Friday. Um, so yeah, there'll be a lot of um, tributes and memorials, I, I am sure, for Tom. None that he wanted the family or Skywatch TV to put together on his behalf. That's just not who Tom Horn was. Um, if you've gone on the Skywatch TV page on Facebook, you can see Tom and his natural element was sitting on the back of the tractor or um, you know, on right. a, a bull, bulldozer moving earth to create new things for the children at Whispering Ponies Ranch. Yeah. When I'd see him in town at the, at the post office, it's like you, you would never know that this was a best-selling author who was in demand all over the country as a speaker, as an, uh, because he would be wearing a t-shirt that, you know, with frayed sleeves and holes in his jeans and shoes that looked like they should have been, you know, uh, rehomed or disposed of years, years ago. That's just who Tom was. Yeah. Um, and, and there's some wonderful stories that his greatest joy was really in what they created at Whispering Ponies Ranch, which is a, a, a facility that is used by partner ministries like Royal Family Kids who work with children in foster care, age nine to 11. Um, children who at are, yeah, I mean, there are many wonderful foster parents out there, but just statistically, children in foster care are at much greater risk of being drawn into drugs and prostitution and gangs. And uh, uh, it, it's just not, their odds are stacked, the odds are stacked against them. And so through this ministry, Royal Family Kids works to show children that there are adults out there who understand that our calling is to protect them from the bad people, not to use them. And so um, that was what Tom set up. Skywatch TV, you know, the, the mission there, I mean, the books, the DVDs that, that are being promoted on the programs every week, is so that Royal Family Kids and other ministries that use Whispering Ponies Ranch don't pay a dime because Tom and Nita could not stand the thought of a ministry having to decide which of these kids on the list do we have to leave at home because we can't afford to pay the camp yeah. for all of them this week. And there, there was a story that, well, two, I think, that summarized who Tom Horn was and is, because we know he still lives. He's just now with our Lord and Savior. Um, one was uh, of a boy, nine years old, who was in the dining hall of the camp, and they, they put out a spread for the kids. You know, there was a salad bar that's shaped like a, like a ship, you know? <laughs> it's like a boat right in the middle of the dining hall. And this kid uh, shows up, and, and he's in line for the first time, and he sees just the, the variety of food in front of him, like food that he's never seen before, like bunches of grapes and apples, because apparently wherever he was living, he wasn't getting things like that. And he's told, yeah, take whatever you like. I can have a second biscuit? Yeah, if you want one. And this kid just standing there with his eyes huge, he just says, I'm eating like a king. And Tom, kind of laughed, but then he had to excuse himself from the room so he could weep. Because we take things like that for granted here. We go to the grocery store and we've got produce that's shipped in fresh from Brazil or Mexico so that we've got produce all year round. I mean, in the middle of winter, we've got fresh produce because it's brought from the Southern Hemisphere yep. and we think nothing of it. This boy seeing a bunch of grapes for the first time was eating like a king. 
The other story, which I only heard Joe Horn tell for the first time last weekend in a little video tribute that he produced. Toward the you know, end, Tom's hair had turned white. Uh, you know, his beard had gone white. Um, and Tom, even though he established, set up this, this ministry and this facility, was very hands-on. So he got called in because in one of the uh, bathrooms in the residence hall, the, bat, the toilet had backed up. So Tom was in there and he's, he's uh, you know, wearing a white t-shirt and jeans and his, you know, his, he hadn't shaved in a few days, so his beard had filled in a little bit. Now bear in mind, some of these children, 9, 10, 11 years old, were hearing about God, hearing about Jesus for the very first time. And some of what they were being taught was, you know, flannel board Christianity, the little cartoon Noah with the ark and the cute animals and little cartoon depiction of God in his throne, you know, wearing, you know, on a cloud with his white beard. So anyway, this boy comes in to the, the room there and sees Tom in his white t-shirt with a plunger working away in the toilet. And this boy's eyes get big and he asks, are you God? <laughs> and, and Tom says, no, I'm not God. He just lets me work here. And then that is like the most Tom Horn thing ever. Hmm. So the people who see the programs with Tom wearing a suit, speaking to thousands of people, or you know, sitting on a panel just rattling off these, these uh, details that he's researched, his, his normal state was wearing a t-shirt and jeans, driving a tractor, working a plunger. So these little kids could see the love of Christ. So um, it was because Tom extended the invitation to Sharon and me to partner in Skywatch TV that we are here in the Ozarks now and that we are doing this. This was at his encouragement. Hey, you learned how to do television from me for seven years. Here, go, go, go do this. You can do this. He told us as far back as 2006, you have a ministry, you have a church. I laughed. I, I'm an old radio guy who just you know, didn't make it in the radio business. Tom was the first one who believed in us. And so we, uh, we, we mourn because we miss him and <laughs> because we're sad at being in a world without Tom Horn in it. But we know that where he is right now, he would not trade places with any of us. And we know that we will see him again one day. Hmm. Amen. Absolutely. You know, Rudy and I got to meet Tom um, this last summer, early summer, um, to go over, because Skywatch, basically purchased the documentary that Rudy had been working on. And so, you know, I had known about Tom for, I suppose, about 15 years uh, through accidentally finding Heiser back in the day and also through accidentally finding um, David Flynn. And it's just surreal to me to think, you know, you're watching these videos now and all three of those guys are, are gone from us and none of them were old in terms of what we think and life is just so short and people need to always keep that before them. And, you know, the reason why all of us do what we do is so that people will come to know the Lord Jesus and know that he's the only hope that we have on the other side of this. We've been talking about death the whole time here in the Valley of the shadow of death and these evil creatures of, of the dead and the Rephaim and the underworld and, and there's hope. 
you know, this crazy conflict over in Israel and taking place right now and all the death that's taking place there and lots and lots and lots of unbelievers on both sides of that. And we as Christians stand outside of that as people who know and have been given life ourselves because of what Christ has done. You know, one of the things that I'm I just was so impressed with Tom and in the ministry, there's exactly what we're talking about with the ranch because we get to stay at the house, you know, where the ranch is. Yeah. So I walked all over that property and seen the little, the little horses and, you know, these are things that you don't know. You, people can have their disagreements over the eschatology. You know, you and I disagree on eschatology, yeah. but people might only know Tom about the eschatology stuff. But when I found out about that ranch and I found out about the stuff that they're doing with child trafficking and trying to make that known to people, I mean, my, my estimation of that entire family just skyrocketed. So I don't know, Rudy, if you have anything you'd like to add as well. I, I echo what both of you guys are saying. I mean, definitely as it, as it pertains, again, we, we met, you know, we obviously, because you just said so. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, we, we met and through the distribution of angels and giants, um, but it wasn't as simple as some kind of a business transaction, man. I mean, he was an encourager. Um, I actually I actually first spoke to him before he came down with COVID, which really you know, messed him up, um, you know, a couple of years ago. And, and then Joe, you know, when Joe, Joe stepped in and took over, um, you know, we kind of started the whole process all over again, because now I was dealing with Joe and, and, you know, everything that had happened with Tom had, had kind of, you know, put that on the back burner. So, so it was basically recatching up. Um, but he was such an encourager, man, the moment that he knew what we were doing. And when he, when he got wind of how, how much effort and love we wanted to put into the actual project he he was on board and then by the time that the project was over when when he saw it it was it was fun it was you know he's such a he you know he's such a, a respectable figure on on camera and whatnot but just to see his almost i've described as childlike excitement over the over the film yeah. And Joe called me and he said, what have you done to my father? And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, he said, he's ready to jump out of retirement to come host this program, you know, um, which was a blessing. And it was very humbling. Lord, it was very, very humbling. Um, the, um, the hope, um, the, the beauty of, of the passing of the saints in, in the Lord is that his, uh, his time is perfect for everything. You know, my father passed away a couple of years ago. He, he had his, his ministry as well. And there's always um, change that happens. And it, it feels, and I, I told Doug this the other day, it, it very much, there has been a feeling of almost like the changing of the guard, if you will, you know. Um, but I know that ta that uh, the Joe is definitely going to, has already, you know, stepped up to to the role that his that his father is, is leaving behind. And, you know, he, he said, I saw his, his video that he put out the other day where he said, you know, these are really big shoes to fill. And he is right. Absolutely. But the Lord has set him up also for, for a time as this. And uh, the, the next phase of, you know, what comes with that mantle now is going to be unbelievable. Like I, I'm blessed and happy and thankful that I much like, much like this last project, you know, brought Doug and I together and I consider him a, a brother and a, you know, and a dear friend. Um, and same with you, by the way, incidentally, um, and excited about all the things that are coming that we've talked about and whatnot. 
I say definitely, definitely, I say the same thing about Joe. Joe has become a very dear friend in a very short time, and he is just a, a good yeah. guy, man. You know that our time in Crane during the taping was a was a was a very very special time. You know, so yeah, I just I echo everything that you guys are saying for sure. Where can people find um, your stuff? And is there anything you want to plug while you're here? Well, I really uh, our, our uh, website is, is sort of the hub for everything we do. Uh, Gilberthouse.org, Gilberthouse.org. We link to all of the programs that we do there. And uh, I, I, you know, people keep saying, "How are you so prolific?" And, and Sharon and I just feel like, "What? We're slugs." <laughs> <laughs> but and but then we step back and we look. It's like, well, I guess we are turning out about four and a half hours of content every week, um, and and we still are. You know, working towards writing and getting some other video projects out. We're working on a video project right yeah. now called The Valley of the Shadow of Death to basically, oh, basically nice. put together our expedition. So, Doug, you will be, uh, you and uh, Janelle will be featured very, uh, very prominently in the the uh, meetings that we had with uh, Dr. Mike. I'll tell her that. She'll, she'll love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so some of those wonderful drone shots, you know, right. action shots, making it look very, very epic as we walked across the Daliot stream there and. Uh, um, but uh, we're, that hopefully will be up in the end of the year, and uh, we're working on a, a book that will probably be published by Defender um, next year called uh, The Gates of Hell. Very cool. That's that's really exciting. Well, it's been great to have you on, Derek. Um, you know, we're, we're going to have you on more than just this one time. I can promise you that if you'll come back. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, as of right now, we have like 20 people watching, so I don't know how worth it is for you, but hey, hey, hopefully on. we'll be able to grow it. Four people. Come on. <laughs> so speaking of that, I mean, we, we, we need to tell people we are trying to grow this channel. And, uh, you know, we're, we're now on uh, just about every major podcasting platform, I think, aren't we, Rudy? Yeah. That we yeah. can think of. The, and the we're also on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And coming very so, soon to Rumble as well. So... <laughs> Yeah, good. So wherever you're going to, I don't know if you can subscribe to this on podcast channels. Pretty much all I know about is YouTube, but you can go and hit the like button and subscribe there. I think you can probably do that on Rumble when we get up as well. So yeah, anything people can do for that would be appreciated. And you also obviously be able to be notified when we put new, new material out, which is hopefully about once a week is what we're aiming for. So thanks again, Derek, man. It's been so great to have you on. We want to have you on again. We really appreciate all the work you're doing for the kingdom. It's it's a really an amazing thing. No, we're, we're just, I feel blessed that the Lord's figured out how to use this weird wiring between my ears. So <laughs> um, always enjoy our conversations, Doug. So anytime you want me, just let me know. Let I appreciate know. it, man. Thanks for listening to Giant Steps, the podcast of, of Doug Van Dorn with Rudy Landa. And we'll leave you with the, our favorite proverb. It's the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search things out. Until next time.